0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. No one compliments you when their paycheck is correct, but make one mistake and you risk alienating your entire workforce. Kronos makes sure your payroll is done right the first time, from punch to paycheck. With embedded checklists and simplified workflows, Kronos is your single source of truth. With Kronos, you get HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping in one unified system, all with a proven implementation approach and simplified, transparent pricing. Learn more at Kronos.com payroll. Kronos, workforce innovation that works. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. In the 19th century, the world was Europeanized. In the 20th century, it was Americanized. Now, in the 21st century, the world is being Asianized. This, according to my guest today, Prag Khanna, who says far greater than just China, the new Asian system taking shape is a multi-civilizational order spanning Saudi Arabia to Japan, Russia to Australia, Turkey to Indonesia linking 5 billion people through trade, finance, infrastructure, and diplomatic networks that together represent 40% of global GDP. He says there's no more important region in the world for us to better understand than Asia, and thus we cannot afford to keep getting Asia so wrong. It's all in his new book, appropriately titled The Future is Asian, and today Parag Khanna returns to the podcast to talk about it. Parag warns that America has a China problem, and the solution is Asia. In fact, he suggests that rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership and building stronger ties with other countries in the region is a much more effective and less risky way to gain leverage over China than a direct trade war. Indeed, he reveals what President Trump gets wrong when he says that America holds all the cards with China and suggests that Trump's tariffs may actually hasten China's push to become less dependent on trade with the U.S. He talks about the booming markets emerging in other parts of Asia and how leading American tech companies are already getting in on the game, signing major manufacturing agreements in places like India, South Korea, and Vietnam. Plus, he discusses the growing cultural influence represented by the hit movie Crazy Rich Asians and why he says Asian Americans are now crossing back over the Pacific to become American Asians. Coming up with Parag Khanna in just a moment. I'm happy to welcome Parag Khanna back to the show for the third time. Parag is a guy who's always seeing around corners and brings fascinating insights into where the world is heading. He is managing partner of Future Map, a scenario planning and strategic advisory firm. He has been a fellow at the Brookings Institute, New America, and the Lee Kuan Yew School at the National University of Singapore, as well as an advisor to the U.S. National Intelligence Council and U.S. Special Operations Forces. He is a young global leader of the World Economic Forum and leading next-gen global intellectual whose numerous TED Talks have garnered several million views. The internationally best-selling author of six books, including The Second World and Connectography, Parag Khanna is now out with a new one titled The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. Parag, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Can't believe it's been three times. Yeah. I've had a lot of seconds, but I don't know if we've ever had a third. So
1: I feel like a veteran. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Now, you say the U.S. has a China problem and the solution is Asia. To me, that sounds like saying we have a flooding problem and the solution is more rain. So what exactly do you mean by that? (laughs)
1: Well, and that you, you really put your finger on it because the problem with the way we think about Asia is that we think it's nothing more than just China. We think right. that Asia is just China writ large, whatever China wants, China and just a smattering of little neighbors. Here are the facts. Um, China is 1.5 billion people. Asia has 5 billion people. Wow. So there are 3.5 billion people asians who are not chinese they come from great rich powerful civilizations whether it is india or iran or russia southeast asian countries japan korea and the history of asia is much more the history of these diffuse dispersed uh, civilizations empires and states rather than just everyone bowing down to china And so one of the main reasons I wrote this book, it's called The Future is Asian, it's not called The Future is Chinese. Um, In many ways, the present feels Chinese in the sense that we're so overwhelmed with all of this focus on China. But the next wave of Asian economic growth and the next wave of our American corporate attention and diplomatic priorities actually lie outside of China, in India and Southeast Asia. And those countries, most of which are democracies, by the way, There's two and a half billion people, and they're starting to grow even faster than China economically. They have a larger population than China. They're getting more foreign investment than China. And that's all today. So if you're looking for just yet another example of how so often our our media or our political pundits or whatever are kind of behind the curve, this is definitely one of them. It's a big blind spot to ignore everyone else and only look at China. And even
0: when we talk about China specifically, the thinking always falls into two extremes. One being the future is entirely China and the other being that the future is certainly not going to be China due to slowing economic growth, demographic shifts, etc. In reality, do you think that China's future lies somewhere in between?
1: You're exactly right. It is uh, the other, you know, corollary. The other mistake is that it's always these all or nothing propositions. Mm. They're going to they're authoritarian. Therefore, they must collapse. You know, they have an environmental nightmare on their hands. Therefore, their civilization will become extinct. And they're growing <laughs> old before they grow rich and on and on and on. They have high debt. Therefore, their economy is, you know, going to ruin. Um, you know, it's definitely somewhere in between. Their growth is slowing. But when you have the world's largest economy, growing at 5% still means that you're adding 2 or 300 billion dollars a year of new economic activity to the world economy. Not to mention that they are also stimulating the other growth wave as I mentioned, you know, India and Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia and Thailand and Vietnam and so forth are starting to grow faster than China and it's not in opposition to China, it's because of China. Mm-hmm. Because China is actually outsourcing its own business activity. China is investing um, more into these countries than any other country is. So in it's very consistent with Asian history. You know, Japan was the country that led the Asian economic miracle, if you remember the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah, It was Japan that inspired South Korea and the so-called tiger economies, if you remember the tiger economies. Now, China began to reform 40 years ago, as you know. Why did China, it's a very simple question. How did China become China in the last 40 years? The reason is actually because of Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and Hong Kong, because they were the leading investors in China. Right. They made it what it is today. To this day, they're still the biggest investors in China. So now all of those countries, Japan, South Korea, China and so on, are actually leading the investments into the new wave of Asian growth countries. So when we look at Asia, we have to view it as additive and cumulative and not just this either or black or white trade war, I win, you lose kind of mentality that we put to it.
0: When President Trump talks about China, he always says that we hold all the cards here in the U.S. And he points to the fact that America is still China's biggest trade partner. Now, if we're talking about countries, yes, that's true. But what else is he missing by framing it in such narrow terms?
1: Yes, he's missing something very important Um, to to cut to the point. He's wrong. Uh, China's largest trading partners collectively are its own Asian neighbors. If you add up China's trade with just Japan and just Korea and just India and Australia and Southeast Asia. It's sort of immediate neighbors. Let's even cut out Australia, right? Just the countries that it borders, it's way larger than its trade with America. Secondly, China's second largest set of trading partners is the European Union, right? And the European Union trades as if it's one economic unit, right? Economic block, Um, you know, even without the UK after Brexit. China trades way more with Europe than it does with America. So actually, the United States is the third most important trade partner for China, the third most important, not the most central, not the most important. Of course, it's very significant. There are categories of goods, especially sensitive technologies that China has grown accustomed to getting from the US, and now it's going to have our time getting some of them. That's because of its intellectual property theft and its violations of fair trade practices and so forth. So they deserve to not get some of these things. But here's the other mistake. The administration acts as if China can only get those things from the United States. That's not true. If you want to buy semiconductors, you don't just have to get them from Qualcomm or Intel or Nvidia. You can get them from Shinetsu of Japan, from TSMC of uh, Taiwan, from Samsung of um, South Korea. Now, guess what? When we look at the trade war, we look at it only from the standpoint of what did the White House say? What did Beijing say? But you know what's happening in between those conversations? Beijing is turning around, turning to Japan and Korea and Taiwan and saying, hey, I've got a deal for you. Uh, U.S. semiconductors, we can't get them anymore. How about you sell more to us? Who wouldn't want to do that? Of course they want to. So here's one thing that never gets reported. Trade between China and its neighbors, like Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, which are very high-tech economies, right? In many ways, on average, more high-tech than we are. Um, Japan, China is just going to buy from them. And that's exactly what is happening. I'm not giving you some kind of hypothesis or like, you know, conspiracy theory. This is already happening and we're not paying attention to it.
0: Well, yeah. And China has a whole strategy called Made in China 2025, which is all about making China self-sufficient and replacing U.S. suppliers with arguably more reliable trade partners such as Japan and South Korea. So you're saying that Trump's trade war is actually hastening the pace of that now.
1: Absolutely right. So a couple of things. First of all, Made in China 2025 has actually been going on, I would say, for 40 years. It was 40 years ago that they opened to foreign investment, and it was uh, and that's the time that they began they became the world's factory floor. New technology came in, but they always required that their technology be transferred. And that, um, and that you know, there'd be joint ventures that uh, that train locals and so forth, so that they would become more competitive. So I like to say that Made in China twenty twenty five didn't exactly begin yesterday. You know, mm-hmm. it really began forty years ago, and it's not going to stop because of Donald Trump, as you exactly pointed out. It's going to accelerate. It's literally going to accelerate because now they realize what their vulnerabilities are. And they want to make sure that they're they're not susceptible to those kinds of supply cutoffs from the U.S. anymore. This president
0: seems to believe that a direct economic war of attrition is the only way to deal with China. You seem to be pointing to a different path that involves the U.S. engaging more with these other nations in the region that are on the rise. Certainly, I have to say that sounds like a safer bet.
1: Yes, and by the way, it's something that, again, is not a kind of just a conjecture or an idea or a theory. If you look at America's digital media internet companies, Mm -hmm. of course, as you very well know, they haven't been able to operate in China. You can't use Facebook and Google, but guess what? They're huge everywhere else in Asia. They're huge in Southeast Asia and Japan and India. They're growing double digits, sometimes triple digits a year in terms of um, the number of consumers using them, the B2B sales, ad revenue, all this stuff is growing like crazy in all of those countries. As I said before, a lot of these countries are democracies. They're more open, liberal, political economies. You can do business there. You can own 100% of your investment there and so on. So in a way, America's tech companies, a lot of them, have already been doing for a long time what all the rest of corporate America now has to do which is to start to get more uh, eggs out of just the China basket and start to diversify across the rest of Asia.
0: Yeah, and I believe Apple's going to be assembling their phones in India now, right?
1: That's exactly right. So in the same week that Apple announced it sort of, you know, decreasing uh, revenue in China, they basically finally relented because India had been pressuring them to manufacture iPhones uh, in India for a long time, or not just any iPhones because they used to do old ones. Um, but uh, now the latest models um, of, uh, of iPhones. And that's now what's going to happen in India. And so that means that, of course, their sales will, in India will grow. And it'll be good for India, too, obviously, because it's going to create quite a few jobs. But again, this is a sign that, you know, big tech companies uh, and the rest of the U.S., you know, uh, sort of exporting corporate juggernauts are going to have to start to get a lot more active in these countries like India.
0: And I want to talk to you about the best approach to this. When Vice President Pence visited the region fairly recently, he gave a speech that many dubbed Cold War 2.0. If asked to choose sides between China and the U.S., how are these countries likely to respond?
1: They're not going to choose sides. Um, You know, uh, since this is our third conversation, you may remember a long time ago we talked about my first book called The Second World, Empires Mm -hmm. and Influence in the New Global Order. And in that book, I made very clear that the kind of dominant ideology or doctrine that drives countries' diplomatic decision making is not choosing one side or the other. A lot of these countries have just still remember the Cold War, where they had to choose between the US and the Soviet Union. There's no way they want to go back to playing second fiddle or third fiddle. Instead, what they're doing is what I called back then multi-alignment. I'm not going to align with you, I'm not going to align with the other guy, I'm going to multi-align. I'm going to have good relations with you, I'm going to have good relations with them, I'll have good relations with Europe, good relations with Russia, um, good relations you know, with Saudi Arabia, and on and on and on. And that's what every country is actually doing. We talk about this idea of, oh, what if they have to choose sides, as if A, they are being asked to choose sides, and as if B, they have no say in the matter. Mm-hmm. But they do have a say in the matter, and I can tell you how they're behaving rather than how we think they should have to choose how to behave Mm -hmm. so let's live in reality here in the real world countries are saying i would love for the u.s to join the trans-pacific partnership trade agreement right but if they're not going to join it i'm still going to do the regional comprehensive economic partnership with china right that's the real world countries let me put, put it really bluntly they're a lot smarter than we think they are
0: so china's advantage here is that they're not asking anyone to choose sides right now
1: Yes, they're not. In fact, you know, they didn't stand in the way of TPP happening, for example. Um, And of course, it did. It did happen. And, uh, you know, they were happy enough, I'm sure, to see the U.S. not join it. Um, But uh, but, you know, that that's the way they sort of operate. They're aware that everyone is going to cut multi-directional deals. Again, they appreciate this multi alignment a lot more than we do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we again, we tend to think you're with us or you're against us. Now, we're a couple of presidents away from that statement. Uh, you know, from the from the George W. Bush administration. Right. But we still act like it, mm-hmm. um, even though we don't say it. We're basically yeah. saying you're with us, you're against us. And believe me, that's a really bad um, sort of demand to make on countries that can that have so many options in who they're going to do business with.
0: What should be priority number one for the U.S. then rejoining TPP? Is that the Absolutely. best first step?
1: To the extent that President Trump is capable of any kind of regret or remorse, and I'm just not sure that that's the case, yeah. but w- were it to be true, um, uh, I think that he ought to regret not joining the TPP. Even the Wall Street Journal editorial board has turned against him and is pointing out all of the ways in which sectors of the um, you know American economy are are hurting as a result of being cut out now from uh, the kind of level playing field or more level playing field that Canadian companies are gonna benefit from, Mexican. Our own neighbors joined TPP very enthusiastically and we backed out of it even though we created it. And now, now that it's gone into effect, whether you're a you know, Japanese um, uh, commodities company or you're doing agriculture or poultry or Canadian um, you know, industry, Mexican cars, all of these things are going to be more competitive now in Asia, again, where 5 billion people are who want to buy stuff. Um, we we've shot ourselves in the foot by not joining that trade agreement that and a few other things. But that would be obviously a very big one in terms of what we need to do. I mean, the State of the Union is coming up. One would hope that, uh, you know, Trump would say something about about this issue. Uh, but of course, he's not going to turn back.
0: And now China has floated the idea of joining TPP itself. I recall that the first time we talked, I believe that you predicted that that was going to happen. At the time, there were still a number of hurdles to China joining. How close do you think China is now?
1: Yes, there has been talk. And I did predict that with the U.S. not joining TPP, that would incentivize China to potentially join. However, since most of the TPP member states are in Asia and they've now launched this uh, Asian version of TPP, the RCEP, Regional Comprehensive mm-hmm. Economic Partnership, China is going to focus on getting that passed this year. And when it comes to the, uh, the countries in the Western Hemisphere that it wants to have, um, you know, sort of greater trade with, that's obviously, uh, you know, Canada, Mexico, Chile, and so forth. But China already has such enormous trade with them that TPP wouldn't make a big difference.
0: And in many ways, you say what's happening in Asia right now is a return to how things were before European colonialism. Uh, what are the parallels that you see?
1: Yes. I mean, you know, this was one of the most fun, interesting, and, and you know, sort of enriching aspects of the book to research is just to look at the pre-colonial world Basically, the world of the 16th century—you um, know—before Europeans really got their foothold uh, in Asia and managed to to subjugate, um, you know, sort of sort of Asian countries and and to to sort of dominate them. So, 500 years ago was the kind of most recent era of the Silk Roads. You know, and the Silk Roads existed right. for 2,000—you know, 2,000 years. So up until that time, there was flourishing trade between Arabs in West Asia, which we now call the Middle East, um, you know, and uh, and as far as uh, as China and Korea and India, of course. And that world is back. You know, we've spent the Asians have spent the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War rebuilding those Silk Roads. And we haven't been paying attention to it, obviously, because we were busy celebrating winning the Cold War, then we were looking at the civil wars in the, you know, the Balkans and all sorts of other things, then we got distracted by 9-11 and so forth. But just to be clear, that doesn't mean that the whole rest of the world was just sitting there waiting for our signals, right? In the last 30 years, they have now, Asians trade more with each other than with the rest of the world already today, like actually for about 10 years now, that's been true. So Asians have already built these new Silk Roads. And I would say it's only our mentality that still lags behind in appreciating that that's already a fact.
0: We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Parag Khanna when we come back in just a minute. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com kick. Then, simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash kick. One more time, betterhelp.com kick. And now, back to the show. China has this massive infrastructure investment called the Belt Road Initiative The common perception is that the Belt Road will expand China's dominance over its neighbors in the region. What do you think?
1: Right. And I think the exact opposite. Um, And this is actually a very, um, you know, this is a very controversial issue. Again, a lot of people, as you said, do look at the Belt and Road Initiative. And basically what they see is like a one-way ticket to uh, Chinese dominance. But the way history works, the way empires work, and the way infrastructure works, uh, which is th- that basically a, an empire like China is is investing in this infrastructure, it's even building it for its neighbors. In, in former days, we would have called these colonies. But what's happening is that, as in the past, these countries like Pakistan or Uzbekistan or wherever, they're going to use this infrastructure to modernize, to diversify their economy, to create jobs, to grow. And then they're going to attract more foreign investment. I mean, we're talking about countries like like Pakistan that would have been considered basket cases just a few years ago. But now that there's all this Chinese money and infrastructure, global investors are looking at them and saying, you know what, that's an interesting place to do business. Look how fast consumption is growing and their stock market is growing. Um, And so these countries will actually gain the confidence to resist China because of China, China giving them the tools to resist. And by the way, that's exactly how history works. Otherwise, the British Empire would still exist. Otherwise, India, (laughs) Pakistan and all these countries would still be British colonies. Why aren't they? Because they gave them railways and the English language and the civil service. And in doing so, again, it gave them the tools to wind wind up resisting Mm -hmm. the British. And what you see today, again, not not a forecast, not a prediction, not a hypothesis right now look at the news look at pakistan look at sri lanka look at myanmar look at uh, malaysia look at kazakhstan all of these countries are saying you know what too much debt to china i'm going to rip up this project renegotiate debt give the deal to someone else kick out the chinese businesses they're doing all these things every single day so the kind of one of my punchlines on this is that what took european empires 300 years to learn 300 years China is learning in about three years.
0: Interesting. So there is a certain degree of anti-China sentiment among their neighbors that the U.S. might be able to capitalize on.
1: Yeah. And again, it's one of these things where because we look at Asia and all we see is China and whatever China wants, we often miss the fact that actually these countries have thousands of years of history in dealing with China. They've had times when they've invaded China and dominated it. Other times, such as now, they're scared of it. But they've got thousands of years of history, and they know how to play the game with China. And, of course, we should have been paying attention all along to the fact that these 14 neighbors, China has uh, as many or more neighbors than any country in the world, right? 14. None of them particularly like China, right? They're all very, very afraid of China. So they're going to do whatever they can to undermine. And so, you know, I like to say that if we want to make sure that these countries don't fall prey to Chinese dominance. We just have to put our money where our mouths are, right? Mm-hmm. We have to step up and say, hey, why are you taking a 5% you know, interest rate loan from China for infrastructure when we could help you get 2% from the World Bank? And why are you using a Chinese contractor where you know, the stuff that they build you might fall apart you know, in the next month when you should be using an American or a German company, right? right. We have to step yeah. up and play that game. And the way to do it, is not to, um, you know, is almost in a way to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative. Because remember that it's a good thing to build infrastructure. What China is doing is a good thing. It is good to build roads and highways and railways in places that are poor and disconnected and where the population has tripled, right? It is a good thing. We have to accept. Not only do we have to accept it, it's just a fact. And, you know, every think tank study and investment bank and multilateral organization agrees And I think that you can just intuitively understand and appreciate that you can't build a modern economy when you're still on like cobblestone, when you're still on dirt roads. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So China is helping these countries. And what we should do is to steer in a direction where they get the roads, but they don't get the dominance. And that can be done. It's actually not that difficult. We just have to step up to the plate diplomatically.
0: China's reconvening the Belt and Road Initiative for meetings in April. The U.S. is likely to boycott that meeting. But, you know, just because BRI was China's baby, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad idea. Should the U.S. check its ego and send a delegation?
1: That's exactly right. The U.S. should send a delegation. The U.S. should um, be, you know, sort of present there again, as should Britain and Germany and others. Mm-hmm. It's fine for us, as we have done, to launch a competitive initiative called the the U.S. International Finance and Development Corporation, and and Europe has its thing called the Asia Connectivity Initiative. That's fine, but the fact is that China has these relationships with 40 or 50 uh, countries of of differing degrees of importance, and that's the Belt and Road Initiative. And if they're going to lock up all these deals and contracts and relationships and and structures and priorities, and we're not in the tent, we're not going to shape how they deal with each other. So we should absolutely show up. You know, the Belt and Road Charter celebrates the idea of free enterprise and open tenders and market principles. Those things are not going to actually happen unless, you know, the Germans and the Brits and Americans are there arguing for it and saying, hey, wait a minute, why did you just cut this deal with Kazakhstan where, you know, the Chinese got the contract, there was no open bidding or tender, you know, what's up with that? Someone has to show up and say, what's up with that? You know, we're not going to tolerate it. And then that's how you dilute China's influence. Mm-hmm. And again, it doesn't require military commitment. That's the beautiful thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I call this the uh, I call this an infrastructure arms race. And an infrastructure arms race is better than a military arms race. And a military yeah. arms race that can can only lead to one thing: war and death. Yeah. An infrastructure arms race creates jobs and economic growth, right? And you're competing to connect. And that's actually a beautiful thing. So I'd like to think that this is a competition where it's sort of a race to the top. You know, who can deliver the best stuff for all mm-hmm. of these countries that need it at, um, at a good price and with good standards. Mm-hmm. In the end, China is building a lot of roads, but all roads don't have to lead to China.
0: Um, I want to talk some more about why the U.S. should be investing in these areas. How big are these non-Chinese markets in Asia? What's going on there right now that makes them so attractive over the next few decades?
1: So, they're, first of all, again, they represent a larger population than China, as right. I said, 3.5 billion people. Then they represent a younger population than China – Um, You know, countries that have a median age below 30 in some cases, certainly below 35, whereas China's is uh, over 40, almost 45 years of age. Um, So they're also, again, like I said, they're more open political economies. It's easier to do business there. You're not facing as much competition from the Chinese juggernauts that have the government support, right? So all of those factors help make them very, very attractive. And um, and I think that's going to be, you know, uh, although it requires that you have a more individualized strategy. you can't just look at indonesia and say you know great that's my substitute for china it's not mm-hmm. obviously it's not nearly as big as china But again, if you have a strategy for India and for Pakistan and Bangladesh and Indonesia and Thailand, Vietnam, these countries are close to each other. You may need, obviously, more localized uh, presence, but you will, in the end, uh, have access to what is eventually going to be um, uh, as large a market as China. You praise the
0: modern technocratic governments in places like Singapore, where you live, and you say there's what you call a top-down revolution going on. That term might seem like an oxymoron, so explain what that looks like
1: yeah, and I say very clear that it's an oxymoron, right. It makes no sense in theory, yeah. but it makes total but it works very well in practice. So, you know, first of all, it's not about praising Asia per se. In that book, Technocracy in America, I spent uh, the first third of it praising Switzerland, right? Switzerland is the archetype archetype of a great democracy with a high degree of citizen participation. It doesn't have mandatory voting, but most people vote, unlike in our country, you know, or in other countries. So I'm actually for universal mandatory voting from the age of 16 and up. I would like to see it in every country in the whole world. But you know, most countries don't have that yet. So the idea of technocracy in America or technocracy in general is not as an antithesis to democracy. It's to complement it with leadership that's meritocratic. That has a strategic vision, a roadmap, something that's credible. People who are who are experts in what they do, they know how to run a state, they know how to run a bureaucracy, they know how to manage budgets. They're impartial, they may be less political. Um, you know, they don't have to fight for re-election every two years. I know this sounds exactly like, <laughs> like America, doesn't it? Um, so you know, we have democracy, right? But obviously the challenges we're facing and the and the um, internal discord that we have proves that democracy alone is not going to make for an effective government, an effective state and a better society that is always improving. It's going to take more than that from our leadership. And that's why I think we need to you know, go back and revisit how we structure, whether it's the White House or Congress, the judiciary, the independence of groups like the, the central bank and so forth. Everything has become so hyper-politicized that it's really damaging to the long-term strategy that's needed to be a successful state.
0: Yeah. And one thing that I found interesting about that, when you talk about societies like Singapore, people having a say in their government is not something that happens every four or two years. There's a feedback loop that's kind of built into the system in places like Singapore so that the technocrats can then go back and try and improve services.
1: Right. This is why I say that, you know, in a way... um democracy is a form of data, right? We have an election, yes. we collect data points, what percentage of people voted for X, what percentage of people voted for Y, and uh, and so forth, right? Uh, and so we need more data, though. We What about all the people who don't vote? What do they think? You know, what are, what can we read from their social media metadata, you know, on their points of view? What about when they do see, click, fix, and they send us a photo of a pothole in the street? Have we fixed it? You know? Mm-hmm. And in Singapore, even though you know which which party is going to win the election, though their popularity is actually declining and they, they measure that and they respond to that, um, what they do is they measure issues all the time. You know, uh, is the price of uh, of the buses and trains too high? What about education? Um, you know, are you able to afford food? Um, is our infrastructure good enough? Um, you know, are there enough jobs? You know, what are the skills you need? They ask people all the time about everything. And even though they know they're going to win the next election, they still respond to everything the people want. If the people say, hey, too many immigrants, then they reduce immigration. Right? If people say, "Hey, too much foreign and too many foreign investors coming into the housing market, you know, and it's it's making prices really volatile, it's screwing up our retirement savings, the government says, "Damn, we better do something about it and they 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 stop the bad practice. So it's a lesson in how to be self-correcting, right? Mm-hmm. The best government is not necessarily one kind or another kind. But the best government is always self-correcting, right? Because a democracy isn't perfect and an authoritarian state is certainly not perfect either, right? So the question is, are you adaptive? And one of the things that we in American political science have learned to appreciate about China is that they may never become democratic, but they are self-correcting. They're learning, right? They're always learning.
0: In The Future is Asian, you also talk about the growing cultural impact of Asia, you say that Asians once wanted to emulate the West, and now the West wants to emulate Asia. Asians used to produce for the West, and now the West produces for Asia. Where are we seeing the influence of Asia?
1: Right. So, and the, actually, the, the punch—the third line there is: they used to want to be like us, and now we want to be like right. them. You know, <laughs> and uh, and you can sort of see that when. Um, you know, when you when you when you when you think about our conversations about how, you know, we wish our government worked, you know, we wish it mm-hmm. functioned. You know, we wish we had those smart cities with the latest infrastructure and those, you know, maglev trains that go three hundred yeah. kilometers an hour, and they've got that. How come we don't have that? You know? Um, so so there there is a bit of that going on. But then the cultural side is a lot of things. You know, I wanna just emphasize again, it's not just China. So yes, we've got lots more Chinese restaurants and we've got lots more students learning Chinese. We we know that we've got a lot more Chinese foreign investment here. We've got Chinese infiltrating our, uh, you know, our educational system. You know, the FBI is worried about Chinese spies everywhere. Yeah. So there is that. But there's also the Bollywood weddings and the K-pop music and the study abroad uh, kids who are going to the Philippines and to uh, into Indonesia and learning Bahasa and Hindi. Um, there's so many dimensions to the, you know, Asianization of American life, right? I mean, the the new the net new migrants from Asia into the U.S. are, um, you know, 50% Chinese but 50% everyone else and the everyone mm-hmm. else part is growing faster because, again, those populations are younger than China's is. So um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why if you add it all up, add up the influence of all of these countries, it's really remarkable. And by the way, the largest source, you and I are both old enough to remember when, when the top concern in immigration was that, wow, there are so many Latinos coming. We're becoming like a Latin country and so forth. Um, <laughs> there are still some and, people
0: who think that.
1: Yeah, though. yeah. evidently there are. Why, what, why am I pretending like this is, yeah. um, like this is ancient history, right? Yeah. But uh, here's the interesting thing. The number of new American citizens every year, the top source of new American citizens every year is Asia. It's yeah, not that was America. interesting.
0: And you also report on a new breed of American expat, the American Asians, instead of Asian Americans, or or Asian Americans who are now becoming American Asians, permanently migrating across the Pacific. Is that mostly driven by economic opportunity, or are there other factors at play?
1: it's a lot of things but i'm glad you mentioned it because this is the part of the book and in one of the articles i recently wrote that's that's the most personal story because obviously i grew up as an asian american you right. know and that that's what i was called obviously i'm totally american but i'm asian so so you know the, we were called asian americans um and uh the uh but now i've you know relocated back to asia and i live in singapore and it's a very expat friendly kind of place and there's millions and millions of americans and europeans canadians who have moved over to various countries around the region you know if you are looking for a really low cost quality of living you know you go to thailand or indonesia if you want to be in a really well-connected super high-tech place you go to a singapore or hong kong or tokyo wherever you're going the point is that what i've observed in the last five years is that a lot of these, um, you know, Americans are there on one-way tickets. It's like, you know, I'm going to try it out for a while, and then one year, two years becomes 20 years, and you've become an American Asian. And that term did not exist until I coined it because there was no – we never believed that anyone would who left their country, usually a poor, feudal, backwards, <laughs> agrarian society um, in Asia, who came to America would ever turn around and leave again. But again, as you said, the economic opportunities are so powerful. They're so compelling. The markets are growing so fast. And for those people who already are like ethnically Asian like me, it's not exactly that hard to fit in, you know? Um, In many ways, just like Asian Americans struggle to fit in in America, American Asians are going and saying, hey, I want to fit in in Asia. You know, I want to be cool. I want to learn Mandarin, you know, Mm -hmm. and I want to work for a local startup and and all that kind of stuff. And I want to eat, you know, sort of street food or whatever. Um, So I see a lot of that. I'm not sort of making it up. It's not just my story. If it were just my story, I quite frankly would not have written about it. I, uh, you know, I try not to put myself in my books. You know, they're very analytical, but it's millions of people. That's why I wrote about it.
0: And I know a number of people personally who've gone through that experience and go particularly to where you live, Singapore, and they say they're going to go for a year. And like you said, they end up staying for a decade (laughs) and still haven't moved back. And they're still
1: there probably. And then, you know, all of this, let's remember, you and I are a little bit sort of older. I hate to describe myself in that way. I used to be (laughs) the young guy everywhere. But now I meet all of these students who are, you know, exactly half my age, university students. And, um, you know, for them, it's perfectly natural to think that, well, well, as soon as I graduate, I'm going to go to Asia and do something in Asia. Mm-hmm. And let's remember this. They already started learning Chinese when they were kids. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so for us, it wasn't normal because like when we were kids, they were still teaching Russian in high school and German. And they don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so for the last 20 years, so I see university kids, you know, you know, white kids, for lack of a better term, coming from America to Asia, they already speak Mandarin. That's not prohibitive for them. They've been learning it all along. <laughs> so they're perfectly Capable of becoming American Asians, yeah. um, and and I again, that's why I see. And they don't just come, you know, sort of sort of naive. You know, they're confident. And one of the things I point out is that Asia is not looking to attract the dumb and poor um, and unskilled Americans because remember, <laughs> Asia has five billion people. They've got lots of unskilled and poor people already. <laughs> what Asia wants are the right. smart and entrepreneurial ones. And so whenever I meet new Americans, I'm kind of like the welcoming committee anyway, Um, you know, I'm meeting some of the brightest, most brilliant young Americans I've ever met. And they're they're again. They're on one way tickets. They've become American Asians.
0: Well, Singapore is still one of those places that's toward the top of my list that I haven't been. Is Singapore as exciting as it looks in crazy rich Asians?
1: Oh, it's it's so funny. You know, when those of us like kind of went to the movies that week or the next week and saw it, we were like, oh, my God, like that's that's us. That's like that's across the street. It's a very (laughs) small country. Right. It's an island that you can cycle around in a day. to be honest, it I mean, they obviously only showed one side of it. You know, they they did capture the the street food, which is kind of like world-renowned and Michelin-starred. And then they captured the kind of billionaire scene. Right. <laughs> and there are, you know, matter-of-factly a lot of billionaires. But let's remember, it is a real society. I mean, it's, it's – by the way, it's the most multi-ethnic, multi-religious place in the world. You have the highest rate of intermarriage in the world. So it's a really – harmonious place, actually. Mm. And obviously, that's engineered. It's by design. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, for those who haven't read the memoirs of Lee Kuan Yew and the history of Singapore, it's actually worthwhile uh, reading, actually. Um, So, you know, it's a a tough place in the sense that it's it's disciplined, it's strict. But here's what I've noticed in just a few years. It's loosened up big time. Mm -hmm. We've got the Formula One car race on the streets. We've got Beyonce and Madonna. We've got Red Bull, you know, sort of uh, paragliding and competitions. It's a really fun place. And that's why more and more people are coming.
0: Well, Parag, you've always got fascinating insights, and you make us think, and you've always got great charts and maps. I want to point that out. Once again, your book has fascinating graphics illustrating the points you make. The book is called The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. Parag Khanna, thanks for talking with me.
1: Great to talk to you, as always.
0: Thanks again to Parag Khanna for coming on the podcast. Order his book, The Future is Asian on Amazon, Audible or wherever books are sold. You can keep up with Parag at ParagKhanna.com or on Twitter at, at @paragkhanna, spelled P-A-R-A-G-K-H-A-N-N-A. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. 5-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at, at @kickassnewspod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.